It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Welcome and happy new year, family. Welcome to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. I'm your host, your civics teacher and neighborhood political strategist, L. Joy Williams, and I am excited that you made it to class this morning. I'm excited that you made it here, period, into 2023. We're now, I feel like we're already a month into this year, but I think it's like two weeks. Anyway, I'm thankful for each and every single one of you that listen to this show, who are fed by this show, who learn from this show. You know, this goes out to you because this weekend or earlier this week, Sunday Civics was nominated again for an NAACP Image Award for their 54th annual NAACP Image Awards, which will take place next month in Los Angeles. And Sunday Civics is nominated again in the Outstanding News and Information Podcast category. Woo-hoo-hoo! Congratulations to us. And I say this is for you also because it's from you that I get the suggestions of different topics because these are things that you all are dealing with on a day-to-day basis in your communities. And I am inspired by all of you who are taking civic action. And we want to highlight all of that in 2023 and have more of you who are doing the work on the ground in your local communities on the show. And I am so thankful to be nominated once again, because, you know, I pour my heart and soul into this show really to empower and to uplift each and every one of you to take action and to take control in your neighborhoods, in your communities, in your state. And I'm so thankful for the recognition of nomination. Now, last year, we were thankful to be nominated. This year, (laughs) we want to come home with that trophy. So please stay tuned to all of the social media on how you can vote, how you can participate and help bring it home for us. And, you know, if you happen to want to meet me in L.A. for the Image Awards, shout a sister out and let her know because I'm going because I'm bringing home that trophy. Anyway, (laughs) thanks to all of you for continuing to listen and really to all of the guests who open themselves up and come on the show. I appreciate every single one of you as well. And we have a great show, a great conversation coming up this morning. This morning, we are going to talk to the editors or the authors of the first book that I'm reading in 2023 which is titled Myth America. This is by Kevin Cruz and Julian Zelazar. And it has some real truths. Those of you who listen to the show, you know that we talk about having the truth of history in order for us to actually set a course for the present and for the future. And so historians Kevin Cruz and Julian Zelazar will be joining us after the break to talk about that new book. You should pick it up. 
and read it. There's some great essays in it. You don't have to read it all together. And so we're looking forward to the conversation with them. And I'm looking forward to being in community with you. So when we come back, we'll dive right into our conversation. We'll be right back. All the wahala, all the problems, all the things that you think that you must do to start in this world. Like when the teacher, schoolboy and schoolgirl come together. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. Welcome back to Sunday Civics. As promised, I am putting into this new year. As I'm reading books, I'm going to invite you to be a part of the conversation. And the first book that I'm reading um, in 2023, they have the the honor of making my top list, (laughs) is a new book called Myth America, which is by Kevin Cruz and Julian Zelazar, but there's authors of different essays inside of it, so we'll talk more about that. Kevin Cruz, who I actually wanted on the show before, is a professor of history at Princeton University and the editor and author of five different books, including White Flight and One Nation Under God. And Julian Zelazar is a professor of history and public affairs at Princeton University. He's also authored and edited numerous books, most recently Burning Down the House and Abraham Joshua Heschel. He lives in New York. I won't hold it against Kevin that he lives in Jersey. Um, But, you know, I married someone from Jersey, so it can't be all that bad. But, you know, I at least, but, you know, was able to prevent my family from moving to Jersey. So, you know, Kevin, I won't hold that against you. Joy, if you want to find out a way for me to afford an apartment in uh, New York, (laughs) have at it. I understand. Throughout my home buying process, my husband kept saying, I can get you what you want in Jersey (laughs) (laughs) for half the price. So definitely understand. But thanks to both of you for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Um, And as you know, we start the show with uh, you doing some storytelling. So I'd love to hear from both of you. What was the story of your first civic, civic action? Julian, actually, I'll start with you. Remembering correctly, it was voting in the 1988 presidential election uh, when uh, Michael Dukakis, who was the Democrat, ran against um, Vice President George H.W. Bush. Um, And I had also volunteered that year, I remember, to work uh, on a phone bank in the Dukakis campaign. So that's my uh, first memory and first civic action. Wonderful. Volunteering and voting. Kevin, what about you? Uh, Mine was, uh, my first election was a midterm. Uh, I turned 18 in 1990 and it was the, uh, I was a student at University of North Carolina and it was when Jesse Helms ran against Harvey Gantt, which was kind of a a famous campaign full of ugly race baiting. He had this uh, affirmative action ad. Uh, It really enraged me. Uh, I got involved, uh, voted uh, and, and we lost. Uh, so that was my first civic engagement was was losing. Just Julian voted for Dukakis, uh, was losing uh, and, and learning that loss is part of it. Uh, and you just shift yourself off and get back into it. Uh, and then and 92 Democrats won. So I, I, I felt somewhat redeemed by that. <laughs> well, you know, now that being your first um, entree, if you will, into politics makes sense. Now the the remainder, at least of your public career in terms of what you write about, I was like, ah, this actually fits. It makes sense, <laughs> you know, based yep. upon yep. your election there. And I actually have to think about it then in context, because 
I, because I went to college at 17, um, I didn't, you know, when I turned 18 and I was in Long Island, um, and my first race that I remember is volunteering for the Black Republican mayor at that time. And because my mom was Republican, I assumed I was Republican as well. And so it was just, you know, like, oh, my family's Republican and, you know, do it. And then afterwards, I was like, oh, wait, all Republicans are not the same. Uh, what is happening? <laughs> like, you know, my, my politics don't kind of align with this. Um, so but that definitely setting up um, my future as well as interest people's entrees and what election is going on at the time and sort of how it um, frames your politicalization from there. So Myth America, um, I actually didn't know it was coming out. Um, usually I get like this list from, you know, people at the top of the year just like, these are the political books to look for in the next year. And I saw both of you in an interview talking about it. And I was like, yes, this is like, people need to read. I was like, but, but, but I don't have hope that people who actually need to read this will, <laughs> will read this, Julian. Um, it'll be nerds like me, um, <laughs> that read this because, as you both say in the opening line, we live in the age of disinformation. And people, um, when we've done a show before about journalism, about the press, people are looking for news and information that confirms what they already believe or what some, you know, or what they think on an issue. How do you hope that this contributes to people sort of breaking through that? Well, it's a it's a tough challenge. We know that. Uh, and the premise of the book is why it's difficult to have the book reach um, a broad audience. I'll say we've been really delighted in the first couple of weeks. It's had a pretty good reception and uh, people seem to be eager to read it. But overall, uh, I think we can't think of it that way, meaning uh, our role as historians, as scholars, is to put out good information, to put out interesting arguments and scholarship. Uh, and look, our hope is that it's not just read by people who are either familiar with the kinds of essays that are in there, familiar with the arguments, but others who might have a different take on American history, um, at least read it. And, you know, if you can get different perspectives to be uh, having broader understanding of the material, you have a more robust dialogue. Um, and we won't give up. Uh, and so uh, our aim is to put the material out there and, and hope that it circulates as much as possible. Yeah. Kevin, one of um, <clears throat> in the piece, I think this is in the opening piece, uh, you all talk about how in certain factions, people are turning out books and articles and op-eds to reinforce uh, not only the narrative of history, but also the present right? Mm -hmm. They become the books yeah. on record because they are churning out all of these books on this. And, you know, I read all types of things. Um, so I read things that, you know, maybe are my same point of view, but I read other things as well. One, I think it's helpful for me to understand other people's thinking um, and, you know, where they come from and coming to a policy table. But it it is also troubling that um, a lot of it seems to also be um, 
putting a stake in the ground of like, this is the fact, this is the truth. And so then when we get to 50 years later, you know, these are the, this is the source material that people are using that is not true at all, or at least is skewed in one particular way. Yeah, it's, it's a huge problem. And this is what we, as we noted in that introduction, what really separates the current moment from past uh, fights over history. We've always fought over history. There have always been lies and legends and misrepresentations about the past. What we think has really distinguished our own era from uh, these recent fights is that um, uh, more and more uh, the question is, well, what's even a fact, right? Well, what, uh, you know, it's not uh, the past cases in which we fought over what counted as a fact and how we might interpret it, which fact we might weigh more than another one. And now it's simply uh, a denial of basic truths. Uh, and that's really problematic. Yeah, I, <clears throat> some of the um, uh, essays, and I would love for you to talk about some of them, um, and maybe some that you, you didn't get to put in there. Um, but the two I've read in detail thus far was one on founding America, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, I come from, um, uh, at least in my political education, it was you learn the facts, but then you also learn the different factions and different, like what they think about or what their idea is. And then you learn to debate it, <laughs> right? So right. that there was no dispute of the actual facts. It was the interpretation that you were able to have dialogue about, to have debates about and, you know, um, and how it would fuel or create the policy and legislation or the way forward. Um, you know, it's, uh, interesting to me that this disinformation age you know with my tinfoil hat it was just like this is this is kind of set up <laughs> you know like it is done this way on purpose because if you have people learn the facts and the truth then they you get uncomfortable once you're you know confronted with the truth and then there it might actually produce change or something new and we don't want new <laughs> like we want exactly what we know will happen. Is my tinfoil hat correct? Yeah, I mean, look, that is the goal of what historians try to do. We're not, I mean, A, we do try to find as many of the facts as possible. And part of the process is broadening what kinds of facts we're looking at, meaning looking for new sources, looking for new voices. And over generations, what happens is the story keeps getting more complicated, not more simple. But you're always grounding the arguments on data, on, on things you can find in the archives and oral histories and other kinds of material. But then what the historian does is they put forth an argument. It's not really liberal versus conservative argument when you're reading good history. Um, it's interpretive arguments. People have very different takes, and that's good, on the material, how to analyze it, what to make of it. Um, how to put different pieces together, how to evaluate different kinds of evidence. And one of the things that excited us with this book is we have some of the best historians in the country who are doing that. Uh, this isn't saying, uh, you know, someone says point A, point B is the only right interpretation. Instead, what we have are historians who in really short essays, kind of well-written essays, put together several generations of scholarship on an issue and lay out a way to interpret it uh, based on what we have found. And I don't think the essays are meant to be an end point. They certainly correct things that are out there 
that just don't have any bearing, either factual bearing or bearing in what most historians have found. Um, but then uh, they're meant to be an argument, and they're meant to set up a better argument, an argument grounded again in what we know, what we found, and, and what historians have analyzed. And the essay on the founding by uh, Akhil Amar of Yale University is a great example of that. Um, I mean, he's, he's taking on different elements of how we think of uh, the development and origins of the country uh, at simultaneously uh, looking at kind of which arguments had greater standing to make the claim that there was a profoundly democratic element uh, to the Constitution, to its message and to the way it was adopted, and at the same time, showing how it was also grounded in the institution of slavery uh, and, and coexisted with it. Um, so that's a provocative argument. It's an argument different people will try to wrestle with what to make of that. But it's by a scholar who really knows his stuff, uh, not only what the facts are, but how historians and legal scholars have interpreted that uh, so that we can have a, a better debate. And that's uh, what we really intend to do. And that's what we do in the classroom all the time. Yeah. Kevin, when um, there's a, a conservative writer <clears throat> who came out with a book, I, you know, read it and, you know, then invited him to lunch. We went out to lunch and sort of talked about it. Um, and I made this analogy to him um, about, you know, early founders of America and how some of the same arguments, you know, you can put in the context of uh, black activists now in terms of talking about um, law enforcement, right? That we are basically paying into our taxes going into a system that is um, abusive, that is killed, you know, making the analogy. Yeah. And he's like, I never thought about it that way. <laughs> like he couldn't make, and I was like, well, why not? I was, you know, I was like, and then to certain to a certain people, like some of the same language that you know those in Britain could make about like those Americans over, you know, over there are some of the same like mm -hmm. phraseology that is used against the so quote unquote progressives and liberals, like you know that you're these what, and he couldn't make the. He was like, huh, I never thought about, it. and I was like, could you not think about it because they were like white people like or white men or could you like could you not see the arguments as comparison at the, at the side and a lot of these arguments sound like that to me right like that they just can't see that just because somebody looks different someone's a different sex someone's a different religion or whatever they can't see that the arguments are the same you know, right. just coming from a, a, a different way, um, are they deliberately not seeing it? Or is it really that that much of a blinder? I can't tell if it's deliberate or, or if it's just accidental, but there is a certain way in which I think um, uh, people on the right, but people across the political spectrum, we all have our own blinders. And I think it's necessary to get out of our bubbles to engage. So good for you for engaging uh, with this with this guy. And, and, and um, I'm sure you maybe learned a couple of things from uh, just talking with his perspective as, as he did from you. Um, but, you know, this is goes to our central goal as historians. We're, we're engaged in empathy, right? It's not sympathy. It's not agreeing with what the people say, but you've got to understand how people saw themselves. You've got to uh, uh, understand uh, what assumptions they're making, uh, what conclusions they're drawing from that, uh, what evidence they're stressing. 
Uh, and so that's a, that's a central part of what we do. Um, so to try to get people out of, uh, out of their shells and, 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 and think a little more expansively, you might not agree, but at least to understand where the people are coming from is an essential uh, exercise. Yeah. And, and if I could just jump in, I mean, there's two different um, kind of cast of characters uh, I think we're, we're challenging. I mean, there, there are people out there who are just saying things that are not connected to yeah. the data. Uh, and so we have a chapter uh, by a historian, Eric Rauschway, who writes about the New Deal. And he, he goes against um, several scholars, including one person who's written many uh, books on this and articles on this, who, who essentially argues, and this is something liberals also, uh, also often say, that the New Deal didn't get the country out of the Great Depression. It was almost ineffective. F. Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal, all the programs he put into place in the 1930s, and it was only in World War II where we have massive government spending that we finally exit the economy. And there, Eric Rauschway is very specific. He looks at the data and he shows that uh, outside a, a two-year recession that takes place in the 30s, the New Deal actually uh, boosts employment. It has the exact effects um, that were intended. And it puts the nation clearly on an economic trajectory toward recovery. So you have one case like that. Um, where I think you're just taking on things that are not true and saying, if we're going to have the debate, let's have the debate, but based on what actually happened, based on good good data. And then you have interpretive debates in the book, which, which are different. Um, uh, so we have Erica Lee, who's a historian of, of immigration, who challenges this idea you often hear in conversations about immigrations, that immigrants keep coming into the country, they keep coming in here, and then they cause all sorts of problems. And her essay is, well, if we don't interpret just the supply, meaning people coming, persons coming into the country, but why are they being pulled into the country? She kind of uncovers a history where we're perpetually, whether it's business, or, or families seeking uh, immigrants to be here as the basis of our economy. And that's a interpretive change that I think uh, alters how we think of immigration. So those are the two uh, different sorts of claims that I think the authors are going again. And again, as Kevin said, some of these are, it's not liberal versus conservative. David Bell, our first essay is on the concept of American exceptionalism, the idea that America is fundamentally different and better than all other countries, uh, not kind of burdened by the problems comparable nations have had. This is a staple of American politics, left and right, uh, frankly, for decades and decades. And he just challenges the concept uh, and shows why it's not particularly useful uh, and how it's been used and deployed politically. So um, those are the different uh, areas we're, we're trying to address. Well, let me ask you this. Why is getting the history right important to the present? Yeah. Okay. So one of our great essays uh, I can use to illustrate this is by Glenda Gilmore, who's an historian of the civil rights movement. And in Glenda's piece, she takes on what she calls the myth of the good civil rights protest. And by that, she means the way in which we have really um, sanitized and elevated the protests of Martin Luther King Jr. and others in the 1960s. And they have been refashioned as something that all Americans supported, that uh, of course were right in their cause and righteous in their cause and were uncontroversial at the time, right? 
And, and you may say, well, well, so what's the problem with praising Martin Luther King? I mean, we all agree he should be in the pantheon of American heroes. The problem is if, if you praise him in that way and elevate him, you put him up on such a high pedestal, he can't be reached, right? It creates a real chasm between what King accomplished and the realities he faced and what we face today. At one level, it makes his story much less impressive. You deny the very real obstacles and the challenges, the confrontations, uh, the confusions uh, that he and others faced. Uh, it makes his ultimate accomplishments uh, much less. But also by framing that protest as good, as peaceful, as uncontroversial, as popular in some ways, um, that's a false picture. Uh, uh, King was deeply divisive at the time. Uh, by the time of his death, he's polling in like the 30s. Um, uh, there are people who um, uh, kind of don't sell, maybe some celebrate his death, but some say, oh, he had it coming when he gets assassinated. There's not a real sense that he was a troublemaker, right? And so if you understand that picture of King, you actually realize that he was much closer to civil rights struggles today, right? That he was much more uh, uh, convoluted, much more... Um, um, challenging uh, than people wouldn't assume. There's a tendency to, you know, boil King down to this one sentence he says in one speech that I don't want to judge. I want a future where my kids aren't judged by the, uh, uh, by the, they're judged by the content of the character, not the color of their skin. I'm sorry. I'm so used to saying this. I'm choking on it. Um, <laughs> let me get some water here. But if you reduce King to that one line, from, which doesn't even represent the whole speech he gives in the March on Washington, there are lines about uh, economic inequality, lines about police brutality, lines about uh, lots of other contentious issues. But if you reduce King to that one line that everybody agrees now, you denude him of the controversy, uh, it makes him uh, a one-dimensional figure, but also a figure we can't relate to today, right? There are those who want to set up these good civil rights protests, as Linda talks about in the book, as something radically different from Black Lives Matter today, right? Uh, when, in fact, many of the same complaints Many of the same styles of protest, uh, urban marches, confrontations with police, these were the exact same thing. And so there's an effort to say, yes, that was good. This protest now is bad. And let's use these as a, as a contrast when, in fact, they exist on a continuum. Right. So I think that's the real issue here. And that's why our understanding of the past really informs how we understand the present, but also how we understand what we might do in the future. Right. And, and so these three things, I think, exist uh, in an important chain. Yeah. Julian, what's another example of that? Because I'm thinking, you know, to Kevin's uh, uh, in that piece, I haven't read yet, but I just know that in general, <laughs> right? As that, um, you know, as someone who leads an NAACP branch and often people saying, well, you can't do that. Or why are you speaking out on this and things like that? You're just going to like, why don't you do it this way? And I'm like, wait, are you the person I'm protesting telling me how to rightfully protest to get you to do the thing? So why don't you just do like, <laughs> why don't you just do it? We wouldn't be here anyway. Um, but in terms of I'm just thinking about things like uh, the essay about the New Deal, um, about policy, or Social Security or things like that. Um, when we have these debates that are legislative, that are policy, that are, um, as we're going to approach in the coming weeks, the debt ceiling, right? Why is it important to know what we've done in the past accurately, fact-based, what, you know, what's inclusive of that in order to chart a new course for the future, um, as Kevin mentioned, at least in the, um, in, in the policy space or in the legislative space? 
Well, in the policy space, debates about government uh, often make all sorts of assumptions about what happened in the past as the basis for what to do next. So you'll hear debates for sure in the next few years about uh, should we expand, cut government programs, do they ever work, or are they just colossal uh, mistakes? And if you take the essays both on the New Deal and Great Society, they both make pretty compelling arguments. Not that either moment of government policymaking was perfect, uh, neither historian would say that, uh, but that both periods did reveal uh, that the government could set out to achieve certain goals um, in the New Deal to alleviate unemployment in the great society of the 1960s to deal with certain racial and social forms of inequality and to have demonstrable impacts on those problems as a result of government policy. So today, if you're going to have a debate about uh, government and and you know what should be cut, whether social security or, or other forms of spending. It's important to have that debate, really understanding uh, that these are not ineffective programs, uh, and the debate should start from that premise as, as opposed to this myth that it's just always something that doesn't work, uh, which then isn't a serious policy debate. And then you have the realm of of um, uh, beyond just policy. So we have an essay on feminism and. Uh, the author makes a really uh, uh, strong claim that feminism uh, was never anti-family, as you hear. And uh, as we enter debates that are going to certainly take place over reproductive rights, other form of federal funding for different services, it's important to understand that uh, feminism was about arguing that the family really could only be maintained and kept intact um, with certain kinds of rights and federal support. Um, so it wasn't pro-family versus anti-family. It was how do we actually nurture and protect and sustain the family? And that realm also has policy implications uh, because you'll hear uh, claims all the time uh, about, uh, you know, how these identities and how these political movements mesh with our national ambitions. And I would just add beyond policy and political organizing you know, it, we're in a bad place if we get to debates about history where people just refuse to agree any facts are legitimate other than the ones they believe in, where they are refusing to have smart debates about the past, meaning, well, it's a liberal interpretation or, frankly, a conservative interpretation as opposed to debates over how do we interpret these very complicated and difficult elements of American history that is part of national identity. National identity isn't simply kind of rallying around the flag and supporting a certain kind of story of the country. It's about collectively debating, re-debating, reinterpreting uh, all of these key issues so that we are stronger as a nation. So I think on all three planes, so to speak, um, it's important we move in, in a much better direction. Yeah. I have a question about punditry, but before we get there, <laughs> I want to talk about one of the other essays I've read thus far, and that's on the one on socialism. And this one stood out to me, you know, I read the introduction, then I went to uh, here. So I apologize for not reading in order. Um, but um, yeah. Uh, yeah, just jumping around here. Um, this one was particularly interesting to me because um, I wanted to do a show specifically on socialism um, because it is the latest um, uh, boogeyman um, that has 
been present in America for a very long time, right? Um, and it was interesting to me to pull out the the, the story and the history um, of how the socialism, sort of the ideas introduced. However, that when you talk about the actual things individually without the title, most people are like, yeah, that sounds, <laughs> sounds like something I would like want to have that I think we should, we should do. But then once you attach that name to it, it then becomes, oh no, but I don't want, right. right, socialism. I'm not a socialist, things of that nature. The other reason why it's of interest is to me, interest to me, which I don't think was explored in detail in the piece was the history of socialism and um, black people in the country and sort mm -hmm. of how the party, the socialism party in different iterations um, have used or been used um, yeah. by blacks in the um, country as well. Um, and, and some of that piece, but would love to hear a little bit more about that and the reason why that specifically was included. Yeah. Uh, well, it was included because it's, it's an important trend, right? And we wanted to get kind of uh, all sides of a couple issues. And we've got a great essay on the free market and myths about that. And the flip side of that are the myths about socialism. Uh, and so Michael Kazin, who is, uh, I think, uh, the, the, one of the best people out on the subject, uh, kindly agreed to do a, a really smart essay for us on the history of socialism in America. And it's a history uh, that has largely been defined by the question, well, a question told in two ways. One is the classic way of why is there no socialism uh, in America? Uh, parentheses, God damn it. Uh, the other one is why is there no socialism in America? Thank God, right? Uh, both sides have kind of asked this question from different angles, but the question is assumed there was no socialism in America, that it was uh, something foreign uh, to our soil. Uh, and never had uh, any any roots here. As Michael shows, uh, it's not true. Uh, you can go back into the uh, early 19th century when uh, the, the the founder of modern socialism uh, came and gave a speech here through uh, the Civil War when Karl Marx is writing uh, pro-Republican, pro-Lincoln uh, pieces in the States. Uh, on through the 20th century, Eugene Debs uh, uh, has a, a huge run of the early 20th century as a presidential candidate. Uh, to people like Martin Luther King, uh, who, who uh, late in his career advanced a form of socialism. So it's a thread that's always there. But the opponents of it have long insisted that this isn't part of America, uh, that it is, in fact, un-American. Uh, and as you know, they've used that then, once they've said socialism is un-American and put that tag on it and moved it off to the side, well, then you use the label of socialism to make a bunch of other things seem un-American. Civil rights was one of the first ones because the socialists and the communists were, in theory at least, uh, and often in practice, uh, supportive of uh, racial integration. Therefore, anyone who supported racial integration must be a communist, right? And so that sort of um, uh, weird uh, syllogism uh, worked over and over again, right? And so you can see throughout the 20th century, um, uh, as Harry Truman once said, anything that helps the people, they've labeled as socialism, right? Uh, and so things from... Uh, a free polio vaccine for children in the 50s was labeled socialism. Uh, the interstate highway system was called socialism. Uh, Medicare, Ronald Reagan denounced in the early 60s as socialism. The Civil Rights Act of 1963 and 64, socialism, right? So on and on and on, these things have been labeled as socialism. In other words, to make them seem too radical, even though they have nothing to do with actual socialism, to make them seem too radical and outside the mainstream. So it's a two-step process. First, deny socialism has ever had a place in America and then say all these things are socialists and therefore they must not have a place too. Yeah. Yeah. So 
I, I think you, again, I haven't gotten completely through the book yet, but I, I, in the beginning, um, your opening essay talked about the punditry that exists. Um, you know, those of us as historians and political consultants that now have this platform in the 24-hour news cycle to get on and talk about what we think about an issue. Um, I've certainly been a part of that and, you know, uh, continue. I try to be very clear about my opinion, what I think versus what is fact that we're moving forward. And actually that's not helpful to your career as a pundit. And so I'm on less and less um, on and um, because I refuse to sort of, you know, sort of buy into that and talk about things that I don't know about. So what, how has that uh, punditry or at least the present day, because I don't know if it um, existed in different iterations and pre in, in previous time in our country, but how has that contributed to the disinformation in terms of people watching things that they believe these are experts on rather than people just giving their opinion? I mean, I think, um, I mean, as someone who has spent a lot of time in this space, uh, first, there is a tradition of certainly historians participating in public debates. It, it was different. Usually it was primarily through writing uh, books that were popular or in certain magazine outlets that had broader appeal, or even sometimes uh, people like Arthur Schlesinger who worked in presidential administrations. There is, there is a tradition of this. Um, there's historians like Richard Hofstetter, uh, whose work was translated or published into magazines like Harper's Weekly and his arguments about conspiracy theory in the United States and anti-intellectualism did have a strong reach. I think uh, what's changed has been both good and bad. Uh, certainly in my own lifetime, in my own career, I started doing this in 98, um, meaning the punditry side. Uh, I've seen a dramatic broadening of the opportunity for different voices to be part of this. Um, and that ranges from everything to the kind of fragmentation of television, which offered more outlets to the internet and social media, which created more opportunities to tweet or to uh, write op-eds. And I think there's been a good element to this. I, I think for sure uh, there's just a larger number of voices. It's easier to hear from people who, in even when I started or certainly a decade or two earlier, the guardrails or the guardians of the gate uh, were there and would have made it impossible. But the bad part is, as you lose filters, as at some level you lose control, you'll also have more people out there who are just saying what they think or outright saying things that are not true. And it's very hard in our time to distinguish what's what. Uh, certainly if it, you're not someone who spends a lot of time studying this stuff and most people have their lives, so that's uh, uh, naturally where most people are, it can become very confusing. So that opening of the doors and broadening of platforms, I think, uh, again, it, there's a good and bad, and, and the bad has been uh, problematic. And, and that bad also sometimes converges with the intense polarization that we've seen in the country. And so there's all this stuff out there, and certain circles kind of go into a certain uh, narrative or a certain set of facts that fits their political purposes. Uh, and that's a big challenge that I think we and uh, everyone uh, faces in the years ahead of, of how to navigate that and certainly how to push back uh, against the, the bad filterless elements of the public square.
Yeah, I mean, certainly there's a tradition, um, you know, I've often described like in civics classes of like either, you know, in the early founding or in the 20s or 30s, people in their pamphlets were the um, were basically the equivalent of having a blog. Um, and, <laughs> you know, it was just like, you know, you being able to throw a soapbox on the corner and stand up is like you having a YouTube channel, right? Like, so it's the, like, we we have this innate ability to just like, I have opinions and I need people to hear about them, right? <laughs> it's just social media and cable news just has significantly amplified people's um, voices, um, whether it's uh, good, bad, ugly, what, you know, whatever it is, it's the amplification of the, um, the soapbox and, you know, people's pamphlets um, that has uh, created, I think, the problem. Because it's good to sort of hear all of the different things, but um, some things you do need to be like, yeah, no, him and his soapbox is crazy, just walk by. <laughs> like, just, you know, just walk by from there. And so I think what, just, to, just to follow up on that, I mean, um, there's all we're in a moment where experts are certainly not loved and uh, yes. there's an anti-expertise uh, element. It's always been part of American culture, but it's certainly intensified. And you see that in areas like climate change. Mm -hmm. Some of that is our own fault. Uh, you know, there are ways in which we haven't communicated the right way or we've positioned ourselves in a way that seems adversarial or superior or something like that. But I do think there is a role. This is part of what experts do. They interject into the conversation as we're trying to do with this book and don't necessarily say this is the only way you have to think about things or this is the only right answer uh, to what's out there, but offer some guidance. This is what college and schools are about of which arguments and which material, whether it's history or something else, can we count on? Can we actually have a debate about it? And, and which stuff is just totally at odds um, with what we know? And I think both of us feel that way with all these debates about how to teach about civil rights and race relations in the classroom, which are now being legislated uh, by political actors in you know, states, Texas, Florida, and other states. They're attempting to prescribe like what what you can put and how you can't teach about civil rights figures and about the profound impact of racism in the country. And part of what experts can do is push back and say, no, this is part for sure of the of our, our story. Uh, and you need to have that in the classroom. Otherwise, you're not having an honest discussion uh, about the past. And so I think there is a role for experts and it's obviously self-serving. But I do believe that in all realms of American life, uh, they can help guide the conversation in constructive and grounded ways. Yeah. So both of you teach, um, and as uh, historians as well, for those who are not uh, perpetual in the classroom students, who are not, um, who are just reading a, new, a news story, watching, you know, Fox News or MSNBC and sort of the, the passing, um, what are some of the tools that you um, have told your students that can apply to general everyday folks on how they can evaluate the information that is being presented to them as fact, as opinion, and how to um, navigate the disinformation age that we're in? That's a great question. And again, I think we can apply things from the classroom. You know, we do a lot of work, both Julian and I in the classroom, uh, with primary sources. I think it's the best way to teach history get their hands dirty, read this speech, read this document, read it in the original form if we can get it, 
uh, but your hands on it. And so that's step one is make sure the thing you've seen on Twitter or on Facebook is real. You know, if it's a screenshot, go to their account and make sure it's something they actually wrote, right? Uh, or don't just read the headline of the article, read the whole thing, right? Um, uh, do these basic steps before you kind of fall victim to, uh, you know, the outrage that it's meant to, to provoke in you and pass along something that's not true. We've all fallen victim to this. So, so just, uh, first of all, be sure it's real. But once you're sure it's real and you're trying to reckon with, uh, is it right uh, or is it factual, um, ask basic questions we would ask of, of a primary document in history class. Who wrote this? Who is this? What are their, what's their agenda? What are their biases? What are they hoping to accomplish? Who are they writing this for? Am I the intended audience? Is it someone else? Uh, or what are they assuming I know? Uh, what are they, uh, what do they uh, need to explain? Um, uh, go down to, uh, you know, what's the context for this? Why is this coming out now? You know, what's the, is there a hidden motive behind this, a hidden agenda? Um, but ultimately it comes down to, is this trustworthy? Is this person trustworthy? Is this account trustworthy? And that's ultimately a judgment call you have to make. But if you ask those kind of questions from the start, um, uh, you're at least heading in the right direction. Julian? I'll just add to that. It's all great advice. I would just add read. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, part of what we do is we have our students read uh, good historical work by historians who are debating uh, about all the key periods. Uh, and so if you read something on Twitter or you hear something on TV for a few seconds and you do want to get engaged in the conversation, I really think it's important, whether it's articles, books, or uh, something substantive, get a sense of what established people who focus on this have said gets back to that expertise, because usually there's lots on a subject. And uh, it's always frustrating when people just jump in and say what they think and make these grandiose claims. And we certainly tell our students, uh, part of what you're doing in college is to uh, really understand what we call the literature, what we understand has been put out on a subject uh, before forming your own opinions. And uh, it's kind of history 101. It's called historiography. And we teach both undergraduates and graduates. You don't just go and say, I'm going to write about the Civil War and I'm just going to start now and I'll, I'll tell you what happened. Uh, instead, you read what historians uh, have written about it, and then you start to formulate your interpretation. And, and I think, obviously, it's different, a classroom versus uh, someone who's just curious about a subject who's not a student anymore. But I think that principle always should apply. And, and I would encourage people to kind of be more deliberate and thoughtful um, at, on some of the questions that really matter to them. Well, Kevin and Julian, thank you so very much. And thank you for, you know, calling, putting the call out to these historians to write these essays that, as you mentioned, are brief. Um, so you don't have to worry about, you know, am I reading a, his, you know, a textbook, if you mm -hmm. will. Um, but they are really brief um, conversations. And they actually, you know, the, the four I've read thus far, they actually provoked more questions. Um, and I always found, find that books that do that are great for me because it's like, huh, let me think a little bit more about this or let me go down a rabbit hole and see what they, you know, we're talking about going to the primary sources. So I always start in the back and just like what what did the what is the source right. in the bibliography where did they get this from so <laughs> you know to be able to read that so thank you so much um for this contribution hopefully you'll be back to sunday civic soon when we talk a little bit more about um some other topics but thank you so much for taking the time
Thanks so much for having us. Great being here. Thanks so much. Thank you. How can it be that you love the most unlovable part of me? Of me. How could you see your life was the only gift I left for me to be free? It's amazing with you. I win even if I lose. Everything's working for my good for all. Thank you so much to Kevin Cruz and Julian Zelazar, the authors or editors of Myth America. Again, first book I'm reading in 2023. I plan to try to get through at least four a month. We'll see what happens. <laughs> try to hold me to that and let me know what you're reading or what's at the top of your list for 2023 to read. Maybe we can read it together, but I want to thank the both of them for joining us for a really great conversation and some really good tools that we should keep in mind as we are watching news, consuming news, whether it be on television, reading it, talking about it on Facebook, some real strategies that we can use to evaluate the information that we are receiving Once again, I'd love to hear from you and hopefully celebrate with you our NAACP Image Award win. I I know we can do this. I know that we've had some great conversations, some great content that deserves this honor. And I'm not going to shy away from it. Let's, Let's celebrate the work that we are doing together in bringing this information to the people, making it accessible and informing and educating and empowering people. So shout out to all of you for already the congratulations. Shout out to Clay and Karen and Laree. Thank you so much for always having my back and supporting a sister. I appreciate y'all. And we'll be back over the next couple of weeks with new episodes, new lessons, new information to share with you. We have some great awesome guests, some of whom are on my wish list, except for Barack Obama. Barack Obama is not responding to my emails and, you know, my social media posts, but that's okay. It'll happen one day. I believe it. (laughs) So we'll be back with more Sunday civics for you to learn how to take more civic action. Have a great one. We are